Hello, and welcome to Community Calls, our ongoing effort to keep the community updated with COVID-19 and other health-related issues during the pandemic. I am Dr. Panagis Galiatsatos, an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and a physician in pulmonary and critical care. Thank you for joining us. So a couple things from uh, that I want to jump on. And first, always thank you, thank you, thank you to our listeners um, joining us every Friday or to those who are listening on the podcast on Spotify or however else you've download, downloaded it. We want to thank you from Kimberly and I to you. You are our front line out there promoting health, preventing COVID-19 by understanding the current science and getting it out there in a comfortable manner to your loved ones, to your household, to your community. So we thank you. Thank you. Today, we have one of our favorite sessions, our myth-busting session. Uh, so much so of our favorite that Kimberly and I always joke that maybe we should just do this throughout, you know, for our next lifetime, you know, and maybe have our own show around it. It's a lot of fun. And keep in mind, these questions, a lot of them have come from you all, from the community. So it's a lot of fun to do this. At the same time, we're going to go over today the numbers, where we're at, and have a special treat in regards to the vaccine uh, rates that are happening in Maryland. Maybe enough that uh, our, our own uh, host, Kimberly, will enjoy to hear. And then I'm going to go over last week with our guest. Uh, she brought up that the New England Journal of Medicine, our most prominent medical journal, just published on vaccines in women who are pregnant. So we're going to go over that data before we jump into our myth-busting session. So let's go over the numbers. And Kimberly, hopefully you already heard that I have some good news that I'm going to share with you. So hold tight, and I'll, I'll call on you when that good news pops up. I think you'll be able to pick it up as well. First, let's stay grounded with where we are at in the pandemic. Globally, 156,926,000 million nine hundred twenty-six thousand. 550 cases of COVID-19 since, the, uh, since it's shown itself back in December of 2019. Deaths, we are at 3,273,259, giving us a global mortality of 2.1%. Here in the United States, 33,371,551 cases with deaths at 594,056 giving us a mortality, mortality rate here in the United States of 1.8%. And here in Maryland, we have 452,035 cases with deaths at 8,642, giving us a mortality rate of 1.9%. Now, as we discussed mortality rates in cases, let's talk about how we are trying to end this pandemic through immunity. And it's coming through a safe way through the vaccines. So our vaccine rate here in the state of Maryland is 36%. We've gone in the last two weeks from one out of four to one out of three to now a little bit more than one out of three. Now here's the good news where Kimberly's going to hopefully get excited. What counties in Maryland are leading the way? Well, if you ever plan to go to the Eastern Shore at any point in time, the counties that have the best, the highest rate of vaccinations within themselves are our counties over there in the eastern shore. Talbot County leading at 46% and Wacomico leading at 43%. Baltimore City, we are at 30% vaccination rate. 
So the state of Maryland as a whole is doing great, and we need to catch up to our eastern shore counties. Kimberly, hopefully that made you happy knowing that you, you like to frequent the eastern shore. Yes, I saw that. Thank you for sharing. It's my home away from home. No worries, no worries. And so before we jump into the myth-busting, let me go over the vaccine conversation for women who are pregnant. So the publication that was referenced was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it covers women who are pregnant. Now, how was this done? This wasn't done in so much a the way that the vaccine trials were done, where they went out and recruited pregnant women. No. What happened here was women who were pregnant and decided to still get the vaccine went, got it, and then registered on a one of three vaccine registries. That's what they did. So say, you know, I'm a woman who's pregnant. I've decided to go get the vaccine. I go and get it, and then I go ahead and register online on one of the vaccine websites in order to monitor my side effects. That's what was done. So it's not that we went out and actively recruited them. These were women in real time who decided to get it and register themselves on a registry so we can keep a close eye on how they do. The vaccines here were specifically the mRNA, both Pfizer and Moderna. Why? Well, because the vaccine trial went from December of 2020 to February of 2021. The time frame where both Moderna and Pfizer were approved by the FDA for emergency use. So Johnson & Johnson is now part of this conversation, at least for this study. So how many women were recruited? Well, not recruited, how many women got the vaccine and registered? Close to 36,000, specifically 35,691 women, ranging from as young as 16, right, because that's how young you could be to get Pfizer, to as old as 54. So 16 to 54, all of these women were pregnant and received one of the two vaccines, the mRNA, either Pfizer or Moderna. So let's break this down a little bit. By race, 76% were white, non-Hispanic. 3% were black, African-American, non-Hispanic. And 7% were Asian, non-Hispanic. Hispanic Latino population made up 10% of this cohort. The most common side effects, 90% for both Pfizer and Moderna, 90% were site of injection pain, right? So where the needle went in, 9 out of 10 women said that continued to hurt 24 hours after the injection. Other common side effects. The second one was fatigue. About 63% in uh, Pfizer patients, 80% in Moderna. This is after the second shot. Headache was the third most common symptom, 47% in Pfizer, 65% in Moderna after the second shot. All of these are after the second shot, by the way. And then what about other kind of more concerning symptoms like chills or fevers? Well, chills were felt in 26% in patients after the second shot in Pfizer and about 49% of those after Moderna. But only 5% in Pfizer and 12% in Moderna actually had objective fevers where their temperatures were greater than 38 degrees Celsius or about 100.6 100 degrees Fahrenheit. So the most common side effects, fatigue, headaches, this is what we've all kind of experienced if you got the vaccine, seems to be right on course with women who are pregnant. 
And now the most concerning side effects. This is where we really want to know, does it do any harm to the baby? So how to prove this? I already said they weren't recruited by research. They went and volunteered and got the vaccine and just registered themselves on a registry. What we did, what, what we often do for women who are pregnant in order to kind of emphasize something that's safe is we evaluate how the women do with the vaccine and compare it to the general population. So what do I mean by that? The authors in this paper reviewed 12 national databases ranging the, for the last 10 years, so pre-COVID-19 and the decade, of the general rates of things like miscarriages or loss of pregnancies after 20 weeks, preterm birth, and, and uh, neonatal deaths. So there's a registry that keeps track of how commonly these occur in a general population. And so what the authors did was they compared how often this was happening in the women who were pregnant and got the COVID vaccine, and they compared it to the general population pre-COVID. And if the numbers matched, or maybe the vaccine was better, uh, lower rates of these complications, then the vaccine was said to be safe. And if those numbers are higher, then red flags would be raised. So let's discuss this. The rates of pregnancy loss before the 20th week, the common, uh, the general population experiences that at about 26%. So a little over one out of four women experience a loss of a child, uh, of a pregnancy before the 20th week. The vaccine group was occurring at about 13%. Rates of pregnancy loss after 20 weeks not that common. In the general population, it's less than 1%. And in the vaccine group, 0.1%. So that matched with the general population rate. What about preterm births, meaning a child being born before the 37th week? In the general population, it's a range, about 8 to 15%. In the vaccine group, it occurred at 9%. So right on par with the general population. And deaths of a newborn, none were recorded in the vaccine, uh, in the women who received the vaccine. In the general population, it's also rare, it tends to occur less than 1%. So this is incredibly good news. This is how we look at a vaccine and gauge its safety for women who are pregnant. Women who are pregnant and got the vaccine experienced whatever they experienced with regards to their pregnancy did not have to do with the vaccine. It just had to do with the gen general population. So this is what's given the confidence to many of us to say it is safe for women who are pregnant. The other thing I want to say, the women who received these vaccines ranged in all three trimesters. So you know, which, if someone's asking, oh, should I get in the first or second or third? These women did well in all three trimesters. So Kimberly, my friend, Dr. G did his homework after we heard last week that the paper came out. I was like, oh, our listeners need to be updated with that. So my friend, hopefully that was fun for you to learn as it was as much fun as it was for me to learn. And now we are ready for some myth busting. Thank you, Dr. G. And I actually was wondering if I could ask you a follow-up question, and I don't know if yes. you know the answer or not, 
But when you were reviewing um, some of the side effects, I noticed there was a, a slightly higher percentage in those um, women that had Moderna versus Pfizer. Do you know why that might be? I'm not certain, and it's a great question why it tended to occur. I'll have to dive in a little bit more. Because generally, Moderna and Pfizer side effect profile seems to be relatively the same uh, during those research trials. Why more women were experiencing um, these side effects versus Pfizer? And again, keep in mind, these side effects are recognized to be part of uh, potentially getting the vaccine. So I don't want anyone to be frightened, uh, you know, getting arm pain from a needle or fatigue. These are to be somewhat expected. Um, after getting a vaccine overall to some extent. But they are still listed as a side effect because it caused unpleasantries. Now, Kimberly, you ask a great question. I don't know. Let me dive into that a little bit more um, and see what that age group, because one reason could be depending on how the age breakdown happened between Pfizer and Moderna, right? Younger patients tend to tolerate the side effects better. And remember, Pfizer was as young as 16 to get. So that's I'm throwing out a hypothesis, but I will sleep through. You gave, you're giving me some homework. Thank you, my friend. I'll come back. Got it. Thank you. All right. So um, as Dr. G mentioned earlier, many of these questions and comments have come through all of you. So thank you in advance for submitting those. And so we will get started. So number one, the vaccines will make me sick with COVID. Will the vaccine make me sick with COVID? Great question. So what I want to emphasize here is that the purpose of the vaccine, ideally to prevent disease, in reality, it's to prevent a severe form of that disease, a severe form of the life-threatening COVID-19. So meaning, if the question is meant, if I get the vaccine, do I get COVID? No, you don't. You, you, don't, you do not get the disease. The side effects are really the side effect of a vaccine, right? Vaccine revs up the immune system. That's why you feel icky. It doesn't give you uh, the disease. But if you get the vaccine, could you still get COVID? And what I tell the general population is you can. You usually will get a mild form of it. That was the intention, right, to prevent you from getting life-threatening COVID that gets you in the hospital fighting for your life. Some patients may still get COVID, which would just be a mild case of it. So the vaccine doesn't give you COVID-19, but if you get vaccinated, Kimberly, just in case if I misunderstood the question, hopefully I'm answering two, I'm giving you two answers for one question. Um, but if you do get the vaccine, you are still at risk of getting COVID, but just a mild form. That's why we still emphasize to some extent certain public health measures with people who have not been vaccinated. Did, did I answer yeah. the question, Kimberly? Okay, you did. thank goodness. Thank you. Good, my friend. Good. So I, for those just um, joining, I am listing these as more of a uh, true or false fact or fiction. So if you hear me, I am simply stating a true or false, not necessarily meeting um, a true statement. Just wanted to clarify. So the next one, herd immunity will slow the spread of COVID. Yeah, no, that, that is true. So the, the concept of herd immunity so let's, let's dive into immunity overall. Immunity for yourself, that is called sterility immunity. means I'm protected. So, you know, when our, when our, for instance, when our soldiers go off to foreign lands uh, to, to, uh, to protect, you know, uh, uh, interest in that land and so forth, these soldiers get tons of vaccines, tons, tons, tons. 
just to protect themselves, right? So that's sterility immunity. When the first person got the COVID vaccine, he or she was just protecting themselves. Now, to achieve herd immunity, that by definition means so many people have immunity against this virus, the virus can't make more of itself, right? So think about it. If I have immunity and I'm hanging out with Kimberly who has immunity, hanging out with Dr. Hale who has immunity, hanging out with Linda Stewart who has immunity, and someone comes in who, who's bringing us COVID, he or she sneezes into the room. If I breathe it in, the virus is like, gosh darn it, I can't do anything, right? Because remember, remember listeners, the virus needs us to make more of itself. But if I have immunity, can't do that. And say I breathe it back out and Kimberly breathes it in, she has immunity, nothing happens there. She breathes it out and Dr. Hale breathes it in. Again, the virus can't find someone who it could make more of itself in, who it can infect. And the biological clock of the virus is ticking and it will eventually die off. Meaning, the virus can't find someone to actually infect and make more of itself. That is herd immunity. And yeah, if enough people are vaccinated, herd immunity can be achieved, and that, yes, Kimberly, is true. Herd immunity does imply the stopping of the transmission of the virus. Thank you. So next is someone who has been infected with the virus cannot get it again. Ah, Kimberly, just so I can make sure I heard it correctly. You're saying those who have been infected with the virus cannot get it again. Is that what the true or false question is? Yeah. So the answer here is, unfortunately, it's false. So we have had many reports where patients have gotten reinfected. And so let's take a step back. And to the listeners, I think you've all recognized that when Dr. G says, goes over those numbers in the beginning, the mortality rate being at 2% means that 2 out of 100 people globally Two out of 100 people who got COVID passed away. Others didn't. And some patients even had a very mild case, if any symptoms at all. So what I want to convey here is that it is a spectrum of disease severity in COVID-19. Some people may not feel anything, and some people may lose their life. It's a spectrum. Same thing happens with your immune memory. Now, I really want you all to think of memory just like you think of your, your brain's memory. You come across a lot of information throughout the day, and a lot of it, your brain's like, this is an important dismiss, 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 dismiss. And some of it may be important. You're like, oh, you know, say, say you're studying for a test and you really want to remember this information. Now and maybe even into the future, your brain will make that as a permanent memory. It will identify that as important because you're spending a lot of time on it. That's how your immune system works. If you come across COVID and it wasn't a big deal for your body to kind of shoo it off, great. It may make an immune memory that's going to be very transient, maybe last a day or two or a week or maybe a few months. And that's how we saw those patients get reinfected. It tended to happen in patients who had mild, if any symptoms, a mild case of COVID-19 or asymptomatic. And those patients, when they got reinfected, usually had worse outcomes. So immunity is very is variable just like the, the disease presentation. It's one of the reasons why we advocate for the vaccine. A vaccine, when it gets tested, it's trying to find the right dose to give to the person that creates a uniform immunity across the board, not a variable one, a uniform one. 
prevent disease and last a minimum of six months in a patient. That is why we advocate for the vaccine. So, Kimberly, false. If you had COVID, yeah, you may still be at risk to get it again. So I have a little science trivia. Um, as my son is still virtual um, 100% and I am uh, his tutor when I get home from work, learning a lot about science. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but we had worked on an assignment about B cells where if you are infected with a virus, no matter what virus it is, that your B cells, B as in boy, remember that virus. So if you're infected again, it will, it will be quicker to identify it and hopefully be able to, um, better able to prevent it from making you sick. Is that, am I learning right? Oh, you are. You are. And I, I feel like I'm hearing the pencil scribbling. You're like, all right, son, we got some answers. <laughs> I'm teasing. Correct. So, um, and this is what happens even for the vaccine. Whenever an infection comes in or something that's foreign and your body wants to make sure we, we, we remember it for the future to fight it off, your B cells, B as in boy, as Kimberly said, they're the cells who make the memory. So they come across and they form what are called antibodies. What's cool about an antibody, think of it like a key. On one end of the key, it, well, think of it a key, but a key with uh, two endings. One end is to recognize the uh, virus or the foreign substance. The other end of the key is to go and unlock the immune response. So it's pretty cool how that memory works. But you're spot on. Kimberly, you and your son are doing great, my friend. Keep up the good work. All right. There's still hope for Dr. Monson after all. Okay, so next one. I have allergies, so I cannot get a COVID vaccine. This is a great question, and one that I come across a lot being a lung doctor, mainly because allergies uh, you know, impact our patient's airways, causing asthma and so forth. So allergies, to our listeners, you've never thought about it as much as Dr. G does, but keep in mind, it's, they're variable as well. There are some people who have poison ivy allergies, right? Poison ivy, if you've ever come across it, interesting, right? Because you touch it one day in your hike or in the forest, and then the rash happens days later. It's called a delayed hypersensitivity. Hypersensitivity is a medical term for allergy. Other allergies happen instantaneously, right? If I eat, you know, I have a neighbor whose son has a bad peanut allergy. Well, the young man, I remember... Uh, if he eats a peanut, he develops an anaphylactic allergic reaction. Life-threatening, he needs an antidote immediately, right, the epinephrine pen. That alleviates the symptom. still needs to be seen by a doctor. But, so you can tell there's, there's a spectrum of allergic reactions, one that can be life-threatening and the other one that is very bothersome. I, to my, for our listeners who get poison ivy pretty frequently, my heart goes out to you. I, I know it's a nuisance. And then there's other types of allergies, of course. There's seasonal allergies, whereas the weather changes and the pollen makes its way in the air and we're grateful to breathe it in. Your nose runs, your sinuses hurt, your eyes are watery. Yeah, understood. So with that said, what, what do we do for our patients who say, I have allergies? So the first thing that I do with all my patients is to reassess what allergy means to them. Is it the anaphylactic kind? Right, the life-threatening one, or is it more kind of an, uh, 
uh, one with a runny nose, watery eyes, or is it one kind of with a rash and so forth? So I try to get a sense of what allergy means to them and if I can characterize it. So I will say that allergies in of themselves are not an exclusion. However, those with life-threatening versions of allergies, and the listeners, you know who they are, right? They carry that EpiPen all the time, that life-saving antidote. Those individuals should discuss with their doctor whether they should receive it or not. And I will say that there's been a handful of patients that I care for who have those types of allergies. They still have received the, uh, one of the three vaccines, but they receive them in our clinic, and we monitor them for about 90 minutes afterwards. And we do find we, we send them on their way. We've had no complications to date. So, Kimberly, if you have allergies, I, if your question was true and false. I have allergies, so I cannot get the vaccine. The question, the answer there is it, it's false, but you should talk to your doctor. So that's how I'm going to answer it. Is that okay, Kimberly? Is that, is that good enough for you? Or, or, that is or, good enough for me. Okay. You're the teacher. You're the one who's grading, so I'm just asking. <laughs> and the two comments to that is, one, poison ivy, all I have to do is look at it, I've got it, walk outside my door, it's in my garden. Two, what's funny about um, seasonal allergies, which I have with all this pollen, I am often sneezing, and it's, we live in a society now, you hear someone sneeze or cough, and automatically, COVID. Um, so it's... Uh, it, it's it's kind of um, it, it's different now, you know. Um, people are kind of always on the edge, but uh, just that little sneeze and it's constant now. It's that time of year. My next Julie, one. I, I agree with you. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. I, I was just saying I agree with you. I, I think the cough and sneeze in public going to be viewed as like the uh, what do we say like smoking in public. You're going to get a lot of people's attention. So um, yeah. So it's it's a. Uh, an odd time for many of our allergy-suffering uh, listeners. So uh, talk to your doctor so uh, he or she can help you out uh, uh, helping end those allergies. And I'm sorry to hear about your poison ivy issue. I'm really sorry about that. Well, you know, it, it is what it is. I know what I have to do. I know leaves a three, let it be. That is my one piece of advice from this call. Leaves a three, let it be, except for clovers. I think that is an exception to the rule. So the next question or, or statement I love um, is, a negative COVID test means I am not infected. Great question. So this, this is a great question. To the listeners, a couple of things, I'm, the way I want to answer this. So the answer to what I'm going to tell you, I'm going to say true, but. So why am I going to say that? First, it also depends on the test. So the gold standard test, that PCR where we go pretty far up that nose and swirl it around, it is uncomfortable. That's the gold standard. I would say if someone is negative from that, I would say at that moment, say I went and got the COVID test at 11 a.m., right? Up until 11 a.m. that day, I was negative of COVID. Meaning if I, after leaving that place where I got the test and went and let people sneeze on me at 12 p.m., yeah, I could pick up COVID after that. If you're doing one of the rapid tests, this gets a little bit trickier. The rapid tests are really good to pick up if you suspect someone has a, a high chance of having COVID. What do I mean by that? 
if you went somewhere and you were told, hey, person A had COVID and you were hanging around with them, you should go get tested. So if you were hanging around with someone who identified with COVID and you were with them for more than 15 minutes in close proximity without a face mask, and you likely breathe in a ton of the air that they breathed out, then I would say if the test is negative on a rapid one, I would talk to your doctor about repeating it, right? So that's, that's what I would say. If you have a high likelihood of having COVID, a negative test on a rapid, I would just ask to redo it again in about 24 hours. Two, 24 hours apart, two negative tests, then I would say you're good to go. But the one thing I want to caution to our listeners, the rapid tests are great. They usually are, are very beneficial for those who have high, have high fevers and symptoms related to COVID. For the asymptomatic people, not, not as great, um, but it's definitely better if you repeat the test. So what, what do I mean by that? Let me, let me land it, land the plane home. Sorry, Kimberly, I'm going all over the place. Um, but the way I would answer this is if you get the gold standard test, a, a negative is a negative test. If you get a rapid test and it's negative, but you're still concerned, ask to repeat it in 24 hours. Talk with your healthcare professional. Because rapid tests, the purpose of them is to be quick, but their quickness does sacrifice a little bit of their accuracy. You can improve that accuracy by repeating the test within, uh, after 24 hours. And if those two tests are negative, then I would say you're fine and you don't have to do these. And finally, keep in mind, that negative test is up to the point you got it negative. So if I got tested on a Friday and then I went out and hung out with a lot of COVID-positive people over the weekend, and my test result comes back Monday negative. Remember, it's negative when you took a test, not during your activities of what happened afterwards. Does that make sense, Kimberly? Is that okay? It does, and I, I appreciate you explaining that. And it's always kind of make me wonder, you know, when we're talking about traveling and going to airports, you get a test done, and you're, you're negative um, at the time, but we don't know what you might do within the next day. So I just really appreciate um, you explaining that to our audience. Um, the next one, um, actually I'm going to pose as a question because I've gotten a number of questions and comments about it regarding blood clots. And so the two-part question is about, is the Johnson & Johnson not safe for women over 50? And are there any reported cases of blood clots um, with the Moderna vaccine? Or actually, if you just want to address all three. I'll address all three. So all the vaccines, I would say, are safe. And the blood clots, let's take a step back and understand what this was and why we paused it. So they're, they're safe. I, I promise you, you know, from my standpoint, you're welcome to talk to your healthcare professional to assure that. I always, always advocate for that intimate conversation with your healthcare professional who knows you better and can kind of give you a little bit more guidance based on your history. For the general comment, all three are safe. Blood clot. Blood clot we've only seen in one technology, the one with the viral vector, meaning we inject you with a virus, and that virus acts like a taxi or Uber or Lyft, carrying a protein from the coronavirus. So vector means, means just that. A vector implies kind of a, uh, like a taxi cab, right, kind of like transporting, a transportation mechanism. That's it. In this technology that is used by Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, what we saw was a very rare type of blood clot. Rare. One out of 
10 to 15 million. That is rare. We've actually never would stop any intervention for something like that. However, why we stopped it? This is important for, for our listeners to understand. Why did we stop it? We stopped it because whenever physicians, doctors, want to prescribe any medicine or an intervention, we better know what to do if a life-threatening complication happens, right? The first thing about a doctor is, you know, that oath we take is do no harm. And that means if I prescribe something or, or want to do an intervention, uh, like, like a surgery and so forth, if there's a complication, I better know how to save your life from that complication. That's what every doctor needs to know before prescribing something. If something dire happens, do I know how to pull the patient back to safety? The blood clots, the rare ones that were happening with Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, actually warranted us to take a pause because these are not your typical blood clots. So to the men and women, listeners listening, I imagine at some point in time in your life, you may have shaved maybe your face, maybe your legs, depending on the listener, or maybe both. Now, if you're like me, you probably cut your face once in a while, right? So your skin gets damaged and you start bleeding a little bit. You don't bleed out because your body forms a clot and stops that bleeding. What I'm trying to convey is that the reason we form clots is due to an injury. Something, some blood vessel got injured and we formed a clot to stop the bleeding there. However, in the case of the Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, those clots were very different. They were actually known as kind of an autoimmune phenomenon, meaning some protein in the vaccine and some interaction with one of our B cells, actually Kimberly, got together and formed a clot. That's what we saw. And you treat those clots very differently, very differently. That's what we needed to do to pause, to learn how to treat these vaccine-induced thrombosis, meaning clots, rhombocytopenia, meaning low platelets, because your platelets ended up being uh, accumulated by that autoimmune phenomenon. And so that's known as VITT, or VIT. That's why we paused it. We needed to make sure that we had a good antidote if this complication occurred. So all three are safe. The blood clots from Moderna and AstraZeneca are more of that rare phenomenon. Moderna and Pfizer, there didn't see any blood clots forming like that, and I would say if there were blood clots that formed, it was not due to the vaccine. It was just, you know, blood clots can form in the general population. So that's my answer. All these vaccines are safe, still endorsed. Talk to your own healthcare professional, or he or she can bless you and say, yes, it should be safe, or I have more of those intimate conversations. So, Kimberly, back over to you. Are there more myth-busting questions, or are we ready to go to the uh, community their questions. So let's, um, and that was great, very thorough explanation. I appreciate the analogy. Always learn. Was that Latin or Greek? I figure that most of the things that always seems to be Greek, and maybe you're just meant for medicine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say the word vaccine to our listeners is actually Latin, and it means cow, right? Vaca, so if anyone speaks Spanish, it means cow. The word vaccine, ooh, not to, quick history lesson. 1797, Dr. Edward Jenner in England saw that people working with the cows, and especially those cows were sick with cowpox, 
Those same milkmaids never got smallpox if it came to the village. He proved his theory by taking a young little lad, eight-year-old, he made a small cut in that eight-year-old boy's arm, took some pus from the cowpox, put it in that uh, child's new formed uh, injury, and that child never developed smallpox throughout the child's lifetime. So the term vaccine is a kind of a nod to our friends, the cows, because the cows and their respective disease cowpox are what prove to us that we can gain immunity without ever having to have the disease. So that, there's your history lesson since you brought up Latin. Great. We're all getting some science and some history in today. Thank you. <laughs> no worries. So, yes, yeah, so let's turn to just a couple more um, community questions, and then we'll wrap up with our closing prayer. Um, so this one is, if I'm young and healthy, do I really need to worry about getting seriously sick from COVID, and thus do I really need to get a vaccine? The answer is yes. And the reason why I want to advocate for this is you heard me say earlier that when you get the vaccine, it's meant to protect you. If you get sterility immunity, it's going to protect you. And you may say, well, I'm young, I'm healthy, uh, I'm risk-averse, risk like, Dr. G, I won't get it. Or if I do get it, Dr. G, don't worry about me, I'll survive. That's a fair comment to make. But keep in mind the other side of the coin. If enough people are vaccinated, the virus goes away, right? Because the virus can't find someone to infect. So really, wearing, you're getting the vaccine. You know, remember we talked about wearing the face mask means you protect others, right? Yeah, you're like, oh, it's, a, it's very altruistic. Well, the vaccine doesn't have to, it's not altruistic, but it does protect others. It protects you and others because if enough people are vaccinated, you're going to be just fine. And let me actually say two quick comments. Last year at this time, we saw we had an ethical reckoning in our in our poor citizens living in nursing homes. I remember being in the COVID unit, it was almost impossible to find someone who wasn't from a nursing home. That virus ravaged them. Fast forward a year later, where we have almost 100% vaccination completion in nursing homes, Kimberly, I've yet to admit a patient from a nursing home since I've been in the COVID unit dating back to February 23rd. We have done great. These vaccines save lives and protect others. So that's what I really want to emphasize. If you're young and healthy, I get it. You'll probably do well if you get COVID and you'll be a sniffle. But you getting a vaccine also assures that this vaccine can't infect you and make more of others. Because remember, even though you'll survive it, you'll still spread it. That's the key here. The vaccine keeps you from spreading it. Back to you, Kimberly. And you know what, I think that's the perfect segue into the next one. And um, I'm actually going to end with this one, as we always get questions about wearing masks and social distancing, um, particularly as we're always getting some updated news um, about that. I am fully vaccinated, so I do not need to continue to follow the safety measures, measures such as wearing masks and social distancing. Great question. So if you are fully vaccinated, by all means, you are seeing the CDC begin to let you party like it's 1999. I, I'm hoping people like that joke. I find it funny every time I say it because really, remember 1999, there wasn't a pandemic, you could live life. Um, the, cha the, the challenge here is the answer is yes. You can put your guard down in two settings. One, 
you're just by yourself taking a walk outside, right? or even in your office by yourself. Or two, you're going to just hang out with a ton of vaccinated people, right? Like I said, remember gave you that uh, that description of Dr. Hale, Linda Stewart, Kimberly Munson, and Dr. She all hanging out. We're not wearing face masks. We're good. We're in our own little vaccine bubble. The challenge comes if we're going to participate or hang out with someone who has yet to receive the vaccine, and we're uncertain of he or she uh, what what their interactions have been. So if that individual brings us the virus, I said the virus is going to struggle to infect us. That is true. However, it could still cause a mild disease in some of us. And that mild disease means it can still spread. So if I get the vaccine and I come across someone who wasn't vaccinated and they sneeze into the air and I breathe in that air, the next day I got some sniffles and I go and it turns out I'm positive for COVID, the vaccine is doing its job, keeping me from getting a really life-threatening version of it. But with my sniffles and my runny nose, I'm realizing, oh, my gosh, I could be spreading COVID right now, right? And I have young ones, and they're not vaccinated yet, so my heart breaks if I got them infected and they had the worst outcome because of it. So, yeah, if you've been vaccinated, by all means, you, you are re-emerging to some extent into pre-pandemic life. I agree. We're getting there. We're getting there. But we still want to exercise caution until a good portion of us have been vaccinated. So I would say if you're going to go into a crowded indoor place, continue following those public health requests, face masks, and try to keep our distance as much as possible. That, that's how I would answer that question. Does that, does that help? So the answer really is around large gatherings of people in public areas, both indoor and outdoor, if you don't know, you really can't vouch that everyone there is well vaccinated and has the immunity. Does that help, Kimberly? It does, and I'm so glad you raised the fact that, you know, it reminds me think of a faith leader that had said well into the pandemic, wearing a mask says to someone else, I care about you. And even though we may be vaccinated, if we're around other people that haven't been, and we get it and we're okay, but we still have the chance to spread it to someone who has not been vaccinated. And I just, I've always loved that message with wearing a mask just shows that I care about you. So thank you for um, reiterating that for our audience. Um, did you have any, um, and also I have always been a Prince fan amongst others. I do have to say that um, Raspberry Beret is one of my favorites. So. That's amazing. No, I'm a Prince fan as well, so this is great. I have, honestly, like, I just, you know, I know we've always had guests and letting them have the last word, and as rightly so, we, we bring in these guests as recommended by the by you all, the listeners. Whenever we do myth busting session, Kimberly, when I say this, I'll be done, and I'm going to turn it over to you for some closing comments before we go to our chaplain. But, you know, it, this, this means a lot. Uh, Kimberly and I have been doing this with you all since March 16th of 2020, we really have no intention of stopping. We may convert it into other things after the pandemic, but it's, it's such an honor to work with you all and give you the information you need to go out there and save lives. And we mean that. I, I tell someone, they're like, I want to be someone who can save lives. I want to be a doctor. I'm like, that's fine, but you can still save lives with just the science you can learn now. So go out there to, to our listeners and promote health and prevent disease. Thank you so much for listening. Kimberly, those are my last words. You get to say some closing words too, my friend. I don't know how I'm ever supposed to follow you because I, I couldn't have said it better. 
So um, my closing words are really just echoing that. So I'm just going to say again, um, I appreciate everyone listening. I always value your your emails and your calls and sharing your very thoughtful questions and comments and, and, and your appreciation. And we very much appreciate you. Um, so just thank you to all and wishing you all a very happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers, grandmothers, and, and, and anyone um, that cares for others, which is all of us. Um, but I just wanted to remind everyone to please join us again next Friday, May the 14th at 11 a.m. for our next COVID-19 Community Partners call. And now for those who would like to stay in the call, Reverend Teague will offer our closing thoughts and a prayer. Thank you, Kimberly and Dr. G. As always, it's great to be with you guys and, um, and happy Mother's Day weekend. Um, Blessings and gratitude to all our mothers, sisters, grandmothers, friends, caregivers, <clears throat> excuse me, all who provide nurture and love. Um, I was just thinking that uh, this time last year at Mother's Day, I, I don't even remember what it was like. Um, I'm sure uh, we were not all together. And so this year feels a little more hopeful with that possibility of some small gatherings and connection. So um, given that it's Mother's Day weekend, I want to offer a blessing for all of us um, and really honoring uh, Mother's Day. So take a deep breath and just be present here in this moment. May you find a space of gratitude to remember mothers by birth and by relationship, appreciation for those times of gentle touch, comforting voice, listening ear, growth challenges, and steady presence. May you love the moments that were challenging with mothers, times when there was a sense of disease and even conflict. These are the truths of genuine relationship. May you find forgiveness in your soul where there has been deep hurt and pain and anger with mothers. And in this reality, may we find grace in our shared humanity. May you, no matter your gender, create renewed relationships of nurture and care in a world so in need of respect and soothing the implicit grief of a pandemic has opened all of us to wounds and loss that we must heal. May you take a moment to feel your own heartbeat, your body, the physical legacy of the ancestors who still breathe in you, mothers and fathers who through generations bestowed life upon you. May we as a community be grateful for them all. And finally, may this day in 2021, the celebration of mothers and grandmothers, sisters, aunts, friends, caregivers, be another step in a hopeful future, one where we stand firm against the systemic racism and violence against our brown and black sisters, that we stand strong together as a force for good trouble. Amen. Thank you, Reverend Teague, and happy Mother's Day to you, too. And thank you, thank everyone, you. for joining us today. Have a great weekend and hope to see you next week. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible by the Johns Hopkins Bayview Healthy Community Partnership, its Department of Spiritual Care and Chaplaincy, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine's Medicine for the Greater Good, and the Johns Hopkins Institute for Clinical and Translational Research.